Well, Jesus tells this parable, and I don't know that I would have told it for fear of being misunderstood. Because if you pay attention to the parable, he uses a story about some very unchristian characters to make a point about kingdom values. And he uses some dishonest people, but I believe because of that, the story cuts through and maybe we hear it in a way that we wouldn't have otherwise. Chuck Swindoll suggests that this story, this parable could have been called How to Get Ahead in the dominion of evil. I wouldn't have expected that from Jesus. Of course, there's always more than meets the eye, and we don't interpret this parable all alone. We understand so much by we've already been working through the life of Christ for 16 chapters with such detail that we're understanding who God is and the nature of his kingdom and his manner of loving the world. And all along, Jesus has been offering this new system of values that he calls the kingdom of God. So there's this wealthy man in the story who hired a money manager. And today we might call this person the manager of a family office. And he manages the affairs of the wealthy. And a part of this work is to write loans and in exchange collect interest from those he gives loans to. In other words, don't use the bank, be the bank. Okay? And this is how you make money. You loan your money to other people and to other businesses and they in exchange then uh, pay you back with interest. But instead of investing the money wisely, the money manager in this case was accused of, uh, by some unnamed sources, the parable doesn't really tell us, of squandering the money. And uh, it's interesting because that word squandering is basically the same word that we saw in the story of the lost son just a couple of weeks ago where the lost son is squandering his father's wealth. And when the owner heard about the mismanagement that he was being cheated by his own money guy, the guy's job is on the line, and then he quickly, the manager on that account surveys his options, and he has no, the owner has no idea at this point how bad things might be. So the manager decides to see if he can minimize the damage by having each of the clients reduce their bill. Everybody with me so far? To reduce their debt. In the first client, he asked him to cut his debt by 50%. I mean, that wouldn't be a bad deal if you're the client. Could this be all the client could, you know, come up with half of his money at this time? So if he could pay back half, we'll just call it a deal. Likewise, the second client is asked to reduce his bill by 20% to reduce it down to 80%. So these values may be based upon each client's ability to pay back what was owed, and that makes some sense. Alternatively, what might be going on in the parable is that this generous discount is being offered by the cheating manager because he is quickly subtracting out the fees that he had added previously. 
In other words, he's bringing the client's bill down to what should have been paid in the first place. So he is quickly discounting his own fees. And if you look at the amount of the percent discount in the two cases, some have done a little math on this, and roughly it turns out to be the same dollar figure. In other words, 800 gallons of olive oil is worth about 1,000 denarii. So if you cut the bill in half it becomes, and take, take a haircut, it becomes 500 denarii. And 1,000 bushels of wheat would be valued at about 2,500 denarii. So a 20% cut would be about 500 denarii. In both cases, with both clients, what I'm trying to say is that the discount is about the same amount of money, about 500 denarii. The manager is reducing the bill by the amount he had underhandedly tacked on previously. He's shrewd. So in, and in addition to that, if you notice in the text, he had them adjust their bill in their own handwriting. In other words, at least now each client, as they agreed to their new bill, is complicit in this scheme of reduction. Hey, that's your signature, isn't it? Agreeing to the amount. The bottom line is, this manager who was dishonest, as Jesus tells this story, is sneaky good. And while he was clearly in the wrong, he writes his wrong. And he improves all of his relationships along the way with each of the debtors, because they're all happy about this reduction in the amount that they owe. And the, at the end of the day, the manager, despite his financial manipulations and the fact that he is a cheater, is commended from his boss. Now, the text doesn't really tell us if he was fired. It sounded like he was, in spite of the fact that he was commended. But while his boss liked it, Jesus calls the man in our text dishonest and unrighteous. So Jesus didn't go for the conniving, but he did indicate that a worldly plan was a good one for both the wealthy man and the administrator. And at the end of the day, the point for both the administrator and the owner, here's their fundamental interest, to preserve and create wealth. And if you only look at the world systems, all is well in love and war. Well, that's the story in a nutshell. But what in the world does Jesus want us to draw from this? How do we understand this? I want to point to verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager. This is what Jesus says. Because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. Very clearly, this verse points out to us that there are two operating systems in the world. 
the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. The kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of light, to use the word in the passage. The kingdom of evil, the kingdom of good. And Jesus' point is that the world is very, very good at their game. They play it to win. They play ruthlessly. Whatever it takes, they go after it. They make it work. And so it worked with the owner and the shrewd manager. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. It seems as though that the children of God are mostly not as clear about our own operating system, what we stand for, how we make our decisions, how committed we are to those decisions. We aren't as determined because mostly we cannot see the results of our choices as clearly or as immediately. And even more confusing, sometimes we play by one set of rules through the week and by another set of rules when we get to church. The world knows how the game is played and they might get burned a time or two, but they've got to figure it out or they go broke. How about the children of light? How many of us as believers switch the rules we play by depending on the situation, depending on the circumstances in our life, depending on the season of our life, depending on the people involved, depending on how important this or that is to us, and we are not nearly so resolved as the shrewd manager. I believe is what Jesus is driving at. And so here's my first question and the question I want you to think about this week. I'm not going to give many answers. I'm going to raise the questions. We'll work on the answers a little bit more next week and then we'll have a third a passage from Luke, uh, the following chapter of Luke in the week of Thanksgiving that all pertain, to, I believe, to these same operating values of the kingdom. But here's the question. Are you as savvy for the values of God's kingdom as the top wealth advisors are for making serious money? That really is what Jesus, how I am framing it, my words, what Jesus is raising in this passage. He says they're more shrewd than are the people of light. I want to pose it as a question. Are you as savvy for the values of God's kingdom as the top wealth advisors are for making serious money? Maybe you can think of uh, the wolf of Wall Street or you think of hedge fund managers or you think of billionaires around the world who just know how to make money because they are focused on that goal.
And it means being worldly wise. It means getting focused if you're interested in the, in the world's values. It means going all in. It means staying late. It means nights and weekends to ensure that your business will turn a profit. Could that also be true for the values of God's kingdom and God's people for loving God and loving people night and day, morning, noon, and night, weekends and weekdays, so that we indeed will turn a profit for God. Notice verse 13. No one can serve two masters. It's not the first time you've, most of us have heard this. text says, a little different context in Matthew's gospel from this one, but either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus in these texts, and this one particularly, Matthew's gospel as well, in a way personifies money. Now money, we know money has no inherent power within itself. Money cannot do something evil on its own. It can't dominate or destroy by itself. Money is neutral. But Jesus consistently in the gospels associates it with privilege, power, status, and a certain indifference to the little guy. Money to the world is the greatest value and greatest measure of worth. And Jesus cuts it down to size. And he says, no, money is not ultimate. It is a tool only. Love for God and love for people is ultimate. So kingdom people have different values. And I want to suggest, and I see it working in this congregation in a million different ways, but the more we own those kingdom values, the more odd we are. We're a peculiar people on that account in a world that's living by a different operating system. But our way of making decisions and what we exalt as important and how we care for one another, these express this new set of values. So this chapter, and this is multiple places, begs one question that we must answer. Every one of us must answer this. And I'm going to put down this second question. The first one is about how savvy you are about kingdom values. Here's the second question. How do you know if you have actually chosen to serve God over money? And if you're looking for me to answer that today, I'm not going to. But I'm going to let you wrestle with that. And I want you to. And I want some feedback from you. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to hear it explored in our, psalm, in our small groups. But in the ancient world, sometimes two owners owned one slave. However, one slave could only be devoted to one master. And the question 
that the text is begging for us to answer from the lips of Jesus is this, who will our master be? Here's the truth. Money is a great servant, but it is a terrible master. And if money is your master, then watch out. And so we might say, well, isn't this, is this, what, this comparison of a slave and a master, is that a good one? Can't, can't we have both, God and money? Come on. Can't we have both, church? Well, our very human, consumeristic, materialistic tendency is to want both. And here's the thing. I want you to hear this. You may receive both God and money. It is possible to be a rich Christian. There are some in the Bible. There are some today, wealthy followers. But I think what Jesus is telling us is that it has a lot of challenges and responsibilities and pitfalls, but it can happen. However, the question doesn't go away. The need to make a choice between God and money doesn't change. Now, the Pharisees were abundantly faithful churchgoers. And they were religiously respected in their synagogues and were the leaders of their community. But verses 14 and 15 doesn't go away either. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. And he said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others. But God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Now this is a jolting bit of scripture. God knows your heart. And as I look at my own heart, I really do love money. So is my love for money a problem? I love numbers. I've got my engineering degree, you know, never really put it to use much, but I've always loved numbers. And I love dollar signs. I like the feel of cash. I like digital currency. I like money in the bank account. I like interest-bearing accounts. I like stocks, and especially ones that appreciate. It's kind of rare, but I like bonds that yield something. I love the freedom it brings. 
I love the opportunities it affords. I love the comforts it provides. I love all the false securities that it promises. So as I wrestled with that, with this passage this week, so I told you I didn't have any answers. What if I love God more, love money more than God? And so I circle back, and I'm going to ask you this question. What is a reliable test to examine your own heart? To examine my heart. Will you pray about it this week? I think money could have your heart, whether you have a little or a lot. I think money could have captured your heart, whether you're just starting out and you don't quite know how to pay your bills, or you're in retirement, but still. You're wondering, how long will I last and how much money do I have? You know, and as I think about that, trying to get ready to retire, I met with my financial guy this past Friday. You know, I'm trying to think through all this. Well, it works out if I don't live very long. <laughs> Honey, you know. <laughs> oh, my. Brad's going to bring this message home this morning and make it relevant to our giving here at McKnight Crossings. And we'll do that each of the next three weeks from one of our shepherds. But I beg of you to think about this question. How do you know if you have actually chosen to serve God over money?